Cervix the podcast. The podcast where pelvic health physiotherapists Emma Brockwell and Gwanya Donnelly talk to incredible guests who help lift the lid and bust the myths on all things pelvic health. Hello everyone and welcome back to At Your Cervix the podcast. Emma and I are really delighted to have a special guest Join us today, all the way from the United States of America, it's Dr. Rebecca C. Graves. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Rebecca C. Graves if you follow the fourth trimester care events that we did as a partnership between the Pelvic Obstetric and Gynecological Physiotherapy Association and the American Physical Therapy Association. But Dr. Rebecca C. Graves is a board-certified women's health clinical specialist. She has extensive expertise and experience in treating perinatal and pelvic health conditions in acute care, home health, and outpatient settings, including long-term hospitalization for high-risk pregnancy and following perinatal loss. She has worked with inpatient obstetrics and gynecology teams to maximize early recovery after delivery and pelvic surgery, including hysterectomy, prolapse repair, endometriosis surgery, cesarean section, birth-related injuries, and following obstetric critical care intervention. She is the founder of Enhanced Recovery After Delivery, an obstetrics clinical pathway that maximizes mental and physical function during pregnancy and immediately postpartum with hospital and in-home occupational and physical therapy. Her vision is that every person will have access to qualified rehab therapists during pregnancy and within the first six weeks after birth, perinatal loss, pregnancy termination, and any pelvic surgery, regardless of their location and ability to pay. I love that. I love the inclusivity, and I love the access to all. So we're super excited to discuss a little bit of that with you today, Rebecca. I wanted to start off by discussing your passion in increasing access to earlier or immediate postpartum support. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance and benefits of this, and how you came about to develop your own service? Yes, thank you, and Grania, I can't you know, express how excited I am uh, to be with you today and to be speaking with you and Emma. Um, But I actually really was exposed to early intervention uh, quite early in my career. And it was actually with a completely different population. It was with uh, women who um, underwent mastectomy and hysterectomy. And so before I even started working with the obstetrics population, I saw the effect of waiting too long to see those individuals who had breast uh, surgery and um, also had um, their their uterus surgically removed for cancer. And so I started treating lymphedema uh, with a lens that we were waiting too much too long to treat this disease that really was not, um, uh, you could not uh, reverse it, you know, after it it, it, uh, led to a certain stage. And so what I discovered with that was, well, if we actually offered our services very early after surgery, within the first two weeks, we could work on range of motion. We could work on um, endurance before they were then exposed to other treatments like radiation and chemotherapy. And so when I you know, established a program where every woman after uh, cancer treatment had a physiotherapist, uh, occupational therapist evaluation within two to three weeks, I then uh, really encountered uh, that more populations really needed that approach, that not wait and see, but, hey, you had a big open abdominal surgery to have a baby, a cesarean section, you know, why not offer you those same treatments, those same recommendations of even protecting your incision, of not being in a position that caused the incision to fold, which we would see a lot of infections come back to the hospital and a lot of postpartum depression around the extra care that, that was needed. And so I really, um, really in 2020 was exposed to the obstetrics population on the inpatient side for the first time in my career. I'd never really worked in the hospital as an outpatient pelvic health therapist um, or a women's health therapist seeing women primarily after cancer treatment. I never imagined that I would actually be seeing moms so soon after giving birth. And so in 2020, I, I took um, a very unique position because the role was, was just a women's health clinical specialist for our inpatient team. And I said, wow, that's odd. I've never heard of that. And so that's the first time I was exposed to that population. And what I saw, I couldn't unsee. I couldn't unsee the the lack of care and information that that moms were given, um, even after experiencing a very high degree perennial tear. I mean, the amount of of pain that they were in to just position themselves to feed their baby. 
I think that I thought that we could do much better. And so after that, I, I had to I had to follow the my, my passion for early intervention and education and expand our services to this population as well. Music to your ears, if you're listening, and um, you've had a baby. Um, Here's mm. certainly in the UK. Uh, once you've had a baby, and this is no disrespect to any professional working within the uh, postpartum um, sector, if you like, but the care just just isn't there. I guess we don't have the resources, the funding, um, and if I speak purely from my own personal experience I had an emergency c-section with my first baby and a uh, planned c-section with my second and I got the bare minimum advice you know it was literally you had a baby very good luck but you're off on your own you know even to the point where I got myself up out of bed I think I even remember helping another lady on the ward because she was struggling to get out of bed and, you know, within clinic, we hear these stories all the time that actually a lot of the antenatal care that women receive is incredible. Um, but once you've had your baby, kind of fall through the net a little bit, don't you? So I wonder what um, what sort of results are you getting with these women? What what differences are you really seeing um, on the front line, if you like? Emma, you said so much there. I, I just, yeah, so there's so much to respond to. Uh, so a lot of our patient population in the inpatient side uh, were women after emergency section. They were not at all um, prepared for having this major abdominal surgery. They were prepared to deliver their baby. And in that sense, they were really being prepared antenatally for a vaginal delivery. No one had really gone through, well, if this turns into a C-section, here's what to expect. So very early on, I noticed that even coming into the room, moms were positioned at an angle because no one had explained to them that at the 24, 48 hour uh, mark, you really want to start to lie your bed down flat before you go home because most of the time they weren't going home to a hospital bed. And it was at that time that we really started to notice that, well, right around where they had their incision, they were in this folded position. And for some of our moms, we really couldn't tell where their incision were until we actually laid them flat. And they, for the first time, could actually, you know, lift up the, the fold of skin, you know, maybe excess skin that was keeping the wound moist and then really putting them at risk for infection. So it was that time that we really started to see that in that time period, that was most critical to determine if a mom might be at risk for coming back to the hospital, which we did experience. We experienced several readmissions because of surgical um, incision opening. And so that was a very kind of a, 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 you know, a very unfortunate, but very necessary way that we had to really establish our care on the, on the team. Because other, other than that, it, it was hard to justify because of a funding issue, physical therapists being offered within 24 hours after cesarean section. But we justified it by saying we could actually prevent readmissions. And that goes around the world. It doesn't matter what nation that you're in and what funding issues. If you can prevent readmissions, uh, prevent the amount of work that someone is doing to get out of bed, right? Because they don't have the railing or they don't have the the hospital bed at home, then what you're doing is you're setting that person up for success. But we were able to show the team that we could actually help with energy conservation as well. After a cesarean section, there was more blood loss, you know, so um, a larger drop in hemoglobin, which affects every part of the body, the fatigue, the CNS fatigue, the, the um, ability to even just carry your baby and walk in the room. And that's just taken for granted in that population that not everyone is able to do that. And so by offering our services, we were able to improve function during the hospital stay and really re reduce their, their um, chances for having to come back. That sounds fantastic. I've got my head spinning wanting to ask so many questions. And um, first thing that comes to mind is that I guess it's a postcode lottery in the UK because we would have that early intervention with the physio coming into the ward and prioritizing the cesarean section deliveries because there would be a bit of respiratory physio, which I know, I think in the US is a different profession. Am I right? It's not the physiotherapists who do respiratory, chest, cardiovascular mm -hmm. treatment. Um, it's respiratory so therapists here. Respiratory, yeah, it's a separate profession. So we do that. And also there would have been advice. Now, it was a bit of a... 
um, it depended when you delivered because if you delivered over the weekend, there was no there was no cover. So like some women got it during the week if they were Monday nine to five, other women didn't. So you can see there's the disparity there in access in that. Um, but what I also want to know was how did you talked about getting the funding and prioritizing it and I suppose raising the benefits of it. How did that? How did those discussions go? Because I always know that change can be quite hard in hospital or bigger organizations. How did you navigate that, Rebecca? Teach it. Yes. So in 2020, this preceded a study that was actually published in 2021, and I'll talk about it soon. Um, but it was uh, by Bismarck and colleagues that actually was able to uh, quantify the profits that hospitals in the United States, at least, uh, gained from one cesarean section compared to vaginal delivery. So we'll discuss that. In 2020, it was a matter of cost avoidance. So we had to reverse, well, how much does it cost for someone to be readmitted to the hospital? We don't want that. And so uh, we used three case studies. I used three case studies at the time of uh, moms who, after primary emergent cesarean section, all returned within um, a three-month time period. So they returned within uh, about four to six days of their C-section to the hospital and had on average a nine-day length of stay. We were able to take that data and say, on average, they had to receive another surgery, a wound vac uh, placement uh, to close the wound that had now opened, um, additional interventions uh, because of the infection, and then close monitoring in the hospital for an average of 90 days. Had we inter intervened early on, we could have avoided those costs. So uh, we had to really use a model that's been used in other patient populations, which is why we justify services after a knee replacement or after a hip replacement. We want to really avoid the cost of those people having to come back because they weren't taught uh, very fundamental things on mobility, on protecting their incision, on optimizing their function so that they can go home and be successful or, or to be seen um, by physical therapy or physiotherapy um, in the weeks ahead. And so we, we use really what um, our basic um, uh, elective surgical model uh, uses for uh, you know elective uh, replacements um, in, in back surgeries. And um, what I wanted to say about the Bismarck article in 2021 is that on average, at least in the United States, profits gained $15,000 in profit per C-section. And so what that really was looking at were hospitals all around the country from rural areas that are non-teaching hospitals, very small, uh, low volume births to large metropolitan hospitals that you would find maybe in New York City um, that are teaching hospitals, very large, high volume uh, birthing centers. And on average, when you went from the rural areas to the metropolitan areas, you would see after expenses were paid, after everyone, OB team, care team, everyone was paid, the surgical team, all of that, the profits from a cesarean section versus a vaginal delivery um, were around $15,000. And so we were really now taking, we had evidence for the first time in 2021 to say, this is now more of a reallocation. If we were to, to, to average out what a physiotherapy evaluation would be in the hospital, it's about five to $700. And so when you, you really considered that a one cesarean section was around $15,000 in profit for a hospital, it was very easy to justify that they could cover one evaluation with a physiotherapist within that hospital stay of three to four days. And so that, that really was not a, um, a barrier that, that many people would imagine because physiotherapists compared to a neurologist that's seen for maybe foot drop or obstetric nerve palsy, you know, when you have to consult these other specialists, rather than using a physio, you're actually uh, spending more of the, the money that you could be profiting from. So we have to really learn how to speak to hospitals in their language. We don't like to do that. We don't like to talk about money and reimbursement, but we have to actually really know well, what were our services compared to, to these other specialists and then speak to, to our administrators in that way. My word, like I was thinking, because some people do opt to go private for their obstetric care here, and it doesn't cost £15,000, never mind that just being the profits, so it costs more than that to the end user. That's crazy money. Oh, it's, it's significant. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as far as what, what the patient is paying, uh, what their insurance doesn't cover, I, you know, you could be looking out, out of pocket, you know, $12,000 alone, you know, for a surgery that you didn't expect if you had a C-section. 
Um, so it's it's an incredible bur- a burden for especially if you really you know don't know what your insurance coverage is and you don't know all the interventions that do come along with the C-section. You can think about it conceptually, but uh, there's a lot more medications. Uh, there, there's a lot more um, just around the clock care that's needed because. Uh, there may be more risk for blood loss and infection and respiratory dysfunction with those uh, major abdominal surgeries. So, so really, it was really important that establishing this program, we were looking at the disparities in care, but we were also looking at, well, who would be more at risk? And so we had to really stratify, stratify those in, individuals by, you know, their their comorbidities. And, and so I often say, not every hospital is equipped to have a, a robust physiotherapist team, but if you do have someone who's had heart issues or trouble breathing or just a lot of challenges during pregnancy, those are the individuals that you would want to prioritize because they're more at risk for having um, a quite a more expensive um, uh, care regimen than someone who may be at low risk. And then anyone who has an emergent uh, surgery, you know, do take into account that that's also a mental health uh, component that that we we really need to protect during those first twenty four to forty eight hours because a lot of times they're not they're not even adjusting to the fact that they also are now responsible for their own care as well as their newborn. Um, so it really does pan out in the end that is is more of a cost benefit to have us operating this early rather than waiting until those issues develop down the road. Yeah, and I mean, cost aside, if you are the woman receiving your sort of your level of care, um, it mu- it must be a game changer, not just physically, but but you've touched on mental health as well. The 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 mental health benefits of seeing you must be huge because it is a struggle. You're exactly right when you're not expecting to have a cesarean section and you end up having that cesarean section. It's 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 huge. Um, and you, you, as you say, you've got to care for a baby as well as yourself. I mean, it's major abdominal surgery. It's huge. So to have someone to speak to about the process, and I, I suspect you educate as to what they've experienced and then how to continue their care moving forwards um, at home as well. Um, is, that, is that all included in, 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 that, in that first few days of seeing them? It is. I would actually like to give you an example, it's especially I'm, I'm keeping the, the patient's uh, privacy uh, with this, but it's an example that stands out in my mind. And I think it's why I keep advocating so, so much for this population, uh, because the reward on the physiotherapist side and on the, the family side is has been abundant. I, I personally, and I've worked a, with a lot of different patient populations, mostly oncology, but it I found it rare to encounter such a more appreciative population when seeing them this early on because it's completely unexpected. You know, we've we've spoiled our other patient populations, especially those after elective total joint replacement. It's like, oh yeah, physical therapy, physiotherapy, you know, they're here again. But with the obstetrics population, they're not expecting to have the robust support from a physio. And so one patient that uh, really stands out was actually, she was with her um, her husband in the room and they were just completely uh, wiped out. And you could just see how fatigued they were. Um, emergency cesarean section weren't expecting it. But uh, she was also not expecting to have so much swelling in her legs. And so it was actually very difficult for her to walk and then even to, um, you know, to even have, you know, her first um, uh, bowel movement to empty her, her, her bowel and bladder. It was just extremely painful. Everything just seems just so much more effortful. And so she really wanted to shower, but you know she was just having so much you know problems with just not expecting um, all of the, the 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 complications. I, I you know I say um, after a major surgery, and so no one had told her about her position in bed. So she had been sleeping um, almost at a sixty degree angle and was pretty far up in bed um, and uh, completely uncomfortable. So I you know advised her, well you know would you like to at least try to prepare yourself to go um, home you know, to your bed that's flat, no rails, you know, would you mind if we take your bed down slowly? And she was so scared. She thought that that would actually open her incision because she had been in that position and she had, you know, she, she was having a little bit of trauma with that. So we took it slow and her husband was right nearby, but we were able to get her flat and she had just this overwhelm of relief. I mean, her, her shoulders relaxed, her body relaxed. She was able to breathe. 
she said, I did not realize that this position was just, it was naturally making it hard to breathe. I felt like mm. I was folded in two. I thought I had to be that way to protect my incision, but I feel like everything is able to stretch out. And so I taught her husband, you know, what I would do uh, normally for someone who had the, the swelling that she had is just to kind of gently from proximal to distal and then proximal again, try to massage, you know, her legs. And it just felt, I mean, she felt right asleep. I think it was five minutes. And so I spent the rest of the session with him and just educating him because he could retain it more. He was writing things down, things that she just did not have the capacity to do. He was writing things down. You know, I, I gave him handouts on what to do. And, and at that time I had developed handouts for the entire inpatient care team. The entire, you know, for the nurses to look over, for the physicians to look over, to make sure that what we were telling people was safe for them to do. And so these handouts involved um, even getting people in a butterfly position and having their hands overhead and actually having them completely reclined, um, teaching their partner if they could to massage, teaching them breathing techniques, um, even even mild um, abdominal or, or pelvic floor, if they could sense that just to help with sensation. And then especially we went into log roll. And so by that time she was asleep. So I was able to come back and then teach her that. But it was that first time, that first, you know, um, sleep that she was able to, to receive that day in a position that really made sense for her body to heal rather than putting the incision in this, this um, very restricted position for the, the duration of her, her time in the hospital. And so it was it really more of, of along the lines of that is that we had to educate the nursing and the physician team that we're not always getting people up out of bed and, and going up and down stairs. That's not really the goal of introducing physiotherapy that early on after a major, um, you know, uh, procedure and after even a vaginal delivery, that's really not the goal. The goal is to really set someone up for success so that their body can heal in the best way possible to teach them breathing techniques to start to turn on their respiratory and digestive system. And then we can move on to mobility that really will be um, what defines their postpartum experience because they'll be getting up multiple times without a nurse to help to care for their baby. And so that foundation is so important. Uh, that we lay uh, down for people and that the care team knows what our role is in that. As you say, mm -hmm. even the support for the partner, I think that's huge because people really do rely on the support when they go home. And I think um, oftentimes in our own UK system, uh, the mother can be bombarded with information, but as you say, they're tired, they're sleep deprived, they've been through a huge roller coaster to get to the point that they're at. How much are they retaining? But one of the things I'm really interested about when you were telling us a little bit about enhanced recovery after delivery, there's physiotherapy and occupational therapy involved. And certainly in the UK, Emma, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think unless there's a really specific specialist need, occupational therapists wouldn't typically be involved in obstetric care. So tell us a little bit about that and what the different roles are. Oh, absolutely. So OTs, I advocated for them. Um, honestly, before I even advocated for another uh, physiotherapist to be on our team. So an occupational therapist, um, really their role um, is quite uh, holistic in nature. And I'll give you really some core examples. I had um, a lot of trouble uh, teaching people just modifications, just with showering. Showering is a very um, energy uh, demanding activity, when, especially if you've lost uh, a considerable amounts of blood. When I, when I quantify things, we're using milliliters. So, you know, anything over a thousand milliliters um, of, uh, after a cesarean section is considered hemorrhage. Um, after over 500 is considered vaginal delivery, but that's not taking into a person's weight. It's not taking into uh, consideration their personal factors. It's just taking into consideration what type of delivery they had. So I've had individuals who, after a cesarean uh, delivery, um, lost nearly 2,000, 3,000 uh, milliliters of blood. I mean, it, again, with transfusions, and that kind of helps to, to uh, reach homeostasis, but it's um, a very significant energy-draining um, event, and now they're standing in a shower. You know, they don't have a shower seat. And so I had to consult. I was on the phone so many of my visits with an OT that was in the hospital but wasn't on the obstetrics unit for really relatively the same issues that we had all over the, the, the other hospital. After general surgery, we would have an OT to um, 
you know, make recommendations on durable medical equipment, like a shower seat, on ways that they can modify their activities, because these individuals also have to prepare um, either uh, newborn, you know, if, if they are storing milk, or, you know, uh, preparing a bottle, not all of our moms have a robust care uh, team, you know, some of our moms were single moms, and they had multiple children at home. And so they still had to care for those multiple children, make meals, get themselves dressed. And so after, you know, major abdominal surgery, Emma, you can imagine with your own experience, just bending over and putting on your socks, you know, it was, you know, we didn't have reachers um, and, and grab, you know, devices that they could actually use to make that um, much easier for them, especially if the baby's clothing dropped on the floor. Um, and hemodynamically, they were unstable. And so they would get dizzy if they were uh, bending over. So we, I really um, started to advocate pretty early on um, in my career uh, with this population for OT services to be involved, because they were really looking holistically at the activities of, of daily life that this individual would encounter. Um, simple things of just, um, you know, uh, dressing their baby or being able to carry their baby or carry laundry up the, the steps. I think that they really do more of um, a holistic role. And I think that for me, the first encounter that I had actually co-treating with an occupational therapist in the, the postpartum setting was with the mom who had lost her baby. And so this mom had a very long antenatal stay. She was on our high-risk pregnancy unit and so she was receiving gifts of clothing for her baby. And I remember not doing anything that, you know, you, you know, in terms of like what a physiotherapist would do. I, I remember just kind of standing in the background, watching the occupational therapist fold uh, this, this woman's um, baby's clothes, you know, because she still identified as a mother. And that was the first time that I, I realized, you know, we define postpartum uh, as a as a mom who has is going home with her baby, we don't really include those individuals who have lost their baby. And here, this this occupational therapist was on our obstetric unit, folding this woman's clothes that she had received for a baby that that was not uh, born alive. And so, I I really now like I appreciate the role that occupational therapists play with mental health, no matter what delivery outcome a person has had. And just with the holistic care needs that they have and just conducting activities of daily life, newborn care is an ADL. And they really do enable and, and empower people to, to care for themselves and their babies and their mental health in a way that, that you know, I, I can't say that other disciplines do um, uh, you know, so well. You know, that's, in, that's built into their role. Oh, yeah, I mean you touched on something huge there and that is I think how we don't sadly offer women who have lost their babies um adequate support again not 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 through any criticism but that that again just doesn't seem to happen and um I wonder how uh how much time do you spend with women who have sadly lost babies postpartum um do you do you go into their homes and offer them support along with the ot as well as just within the hospital setting you will you will join them will you in there in, and, and and help support their recovery um in in the in those early days yeah so in the hospital, I've actually spent probably more time with uh, moms who have lost their baby. And there's um, a specific reason for that. And I'll answer your question about home visits. But there is um, a certain endorphin uh, boost when a mom has had a baby, like even through pain, I think it just is something that just lessens the, the pain and maybe the memories and the trauma of birth, and they're holding their baby in their arm. You know, those endorphins are not released, though, for moms who have lost their baby. Uh, their pain is much more acute. It's almost like the center of their world. And so my experience treating moms in the hospitals, um, we had cooling bassinets for the baby. Um, and so those are, are um, you know, very special uh, bassinets that are kept cold so that they could bond with their baby as long as possible. And so that they really didn't have to leave um, early on. They were allowed the same length of stay as someone who had 
um, you know, whatever delivery type, uh, vaginal or cesarean delivery type. So we've often had even moms who delivered by cesarean section um, who had lost their baby being able to stay for three or four days. And so because now the focus was really on them, not necessarily the baby, which a lot of our hospitals do practice baby-centered care, not not mother-centered care, we were actually able to really focus on their healing and treat them as, you know, the, the major abdominal surgery that they had and the pain that they had and the mobility impairments that when you do have a baby, sometimes those endorphins really do uh, mask that, you know. And so um, my personal experience has been more telehealth for the moms who continue to have in, um, trouble at home um, because I'm I'm now, you know, uh, unfortunately, that's really just the nature of I'm being um, called for moms who are having trouble with a baby, you know, that they're also caring for. And so my experience has really been, you know, more troubleshooting uh, what can be done on the 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 back end for moms who had lost their baby, but are still having trouble like prolapse or having trouble where, um, you know, if they did have a um, a, a dilation and cuterage to remove placental or retention or retain placenta or pl placental products, they're still having trouble on the back end. But I will say that in the hospital setting, the acute care therapists that are consulted on those units are really treating that those individuals um, really for the impairments that they might be experiencing, which are, are even, I would say, you know, I, I say it's inflated, but I, I hate to use that term because I think that they're really being masked if they have a baby, but that's actually, you know, what they're experiencing truly um, just from the result of having a delivery. So my experiences have ranged from treating people who had a cesarean section, lost their baby, had a vaginal delivery, and unfortunately had symphysis pubis dysfunction. And so I would have to bring a walker in, we would have to work on mobility, um, I would have to work on energy conservation and really all of that around the grief that they were experiencing as well. So it's a very sensitive visit, whether performed in the hospital or in their home. And the care does need to con continue. I think that that's really my goal is to expand um, so that those individuals have access to OT or physiotherapists in their home because they need it more um, than we, we've uh, been documenting. And that's actually been researched is that uh, moms who have experienced perinatal loss are at more risk for postpartum readmission. They're at more risk of being readmitted to the hospital after um, uh, experiencing a stillbirth or, or infant loss um, in their pregnancy. So that's really a consideration for us as a care team, for us as physios to be aware of. PWDP actually, our professional network actually updated their uh, postpartum advice leaflet for um, people who have experienced infant loss. So that was um, good. We'll link that into the sh uh, show notes as well, just for anyone who wants to take a look at that, because it is a really important topic. And I remember myself back when I was a junior physiotherapist on the postpartum wards, and we did see women after they experienced infant loss, but you also you could find that people also tended to nearly out of respect or out of not knowing how to handle the situation, try to avoid the room, which was not the right thing either. Because and when when you do enter those rooms, one of the things I was very aware of is that people wanted to talk about their baby. They wanted, you know, and they want to talk about the situation and make that person, you know, that person exists, that person is valid, you know, not to skirt around the issue or not to mention um, baby. They wanted you to ask them or talk about the baby. Um, so it's a really, really difficult situation. Oh, my goodness. But one of the other, we've, that's one of the populations that we can see that can sometimes be marginalised. But one of the other populations that I'm very aware of in the obstetric and perinatal community that you have brought great awareness to, Rebecca, because you've kindly let me use slides of yours in the past and things too. But tell us a little bit about what we understand about maternal risk and maternal mortality across our population. Yes, yes, this is a very uh, sensitive issue. And I'm, I'm quite, um, I'm really finding the latest report uh, challenging to read because um, in the United States, at least, we break up our population into the, the dominant three uh, races, uh, white, 
uh, non-Hispanic, uh, Black, non-Hispanic, and then Hispanic. And we've seen um, in our lowest you know, population that historically has had the lowest maternal mortality um, actually have the highest maternal mortality. Hispanics have actually uh, had a 52% increase in maternal mortality. And we, we're, I'm completely shocked um, that, that we're not speaking more about this. Uh, historically, Hispanic populations in the United States um, and really around the world have been characterized for their robust support system. And so since 2020, that's changed dramat dramatically, especially in the obstetrics population. And so we really don't know what's accounting specifically for their increase in mortality, but they're um, now kind of nearing our national average, which, uh, you know, between 2017 to 2023 has um, increased dramatically across the board, across all races. And so across the world, uh, we still rank number one of all developed nations for maternal mortality, but we're just seeing a rise in all of our different racial groups that historically have not um, really been close to the, the black population, which unfortunately really leads about three times as much as, as um, our white counterparts in the country. It really looks like um, the, the way our, our national averages are, it really looks like we're we're three different countries and one almost in the United States. We really do um, have quite the range. And so that's all to say is that, um, unfortunately, if, if you have um, high income or high education, uh, that's not protective anymore. These are, are, are statistics that are solely based on the color of our skin. And so, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, it's something that interests me very much because, you know, if I go into a hospital, I'm at, at just as much risk of for my skin color, uh, three times more at risk of my white counterpart who has the same degree, who has the same um, um, income status, um, you know, a geographical living location. I'm at more risk still just based on the color of my skin. If I go and I have my baby and I, I you know, do the, what's considered standard of care interventions, you know, that's it's no longer protective to be in a high income or high education level. And so that's really has been a passion of mine to really uh, start to talk um, very specifically and intentionally about the care that's either being given at the time uh, that labor starts and then especially during the postpartum period. And it really does in, um, intrigue me that because of, you know, around 80% of these maternal mortality deaths are now considered preventable, what about the, the prevention side are, are we missing? You know, if we're now accounting that 80% of these deaths are preventable, which is, is uh, completely significant to me, what could we be doing in the postpartum period and it still um, supports the use of physiotherapy and occupational therapy in that very critical postpartum 24 to 48 hour time period. Most of the deaths that are occurring, over half the deaths that are occurring across the board, across the world are within the first six weeks. And so if you're uh, looking at, well, what are the causes of death? They consider, they um, uh, continue to be the top three, infection, uh, postpartum hemorrhage, and then cardiac events. And so to me, that really makes me want to look at, well, what are the activity demands? What's the support system? You know, because I started out talking about the Hispanic population and the robust support system that they had. Well, what are the activity demands that moms are encountering within the first six weeks? And where does that care fall off? If especially they're not following up with their OB until week six, we're having a big opportunity um, that we're missing to, to really provide that intervention, the education, um, how to manage the, the amount of energy uh, that they're, they're expending you know, on a daily basis, uh, how much uh, sleep that they're getting, what position are they sleeping, what is their respiratory function, what's their own um, understanding of measuring their heart rate and their blood pressure and their oxygen levels, uh, do they have the device that they need? Are they single parents? Are they able to, to get to the, the pediatrician uh, visit or even their OB visit to care for themselves? And so it really is a critical time period that I think we as physios, because we ask those questions and we're very intentional about the home environment and the support system, is that if we're on the care team that early on, I think that we could actually 
uh, be very pivotal in, in uh, looking at what are the risk factors for those individuals and really reducing the disparities that people have who don't have robust care systems to go home to. quite eye-opening and it's quite a hard listen actually you know in terms of like realizing that there is as you've highlighted prevent quite a high proportion of preventable deaths and mortality and like I suppose from your awareness of this and perhaps looking at this more closely is it a lack of education or access to education is it a case that um that there's an increased risk of people not having support networks at home, or what is the difference? Like, what? Why is there? Like, what are the factors? Do we know what the factors are that are causing these preventable deaths? Right, and so I do want to make a correction. Sixty percent of of these maternal uh, deaths have been um, noted to be preventable. So sixty percent. I did say eighty percent before, but in terms it's of the <laughs> no, it's, it's still a lot. I mean, we're we're looking at you know if if you know we can save fifty out of one hundred people, and we have the ability to do that. Uh, you know, we're looking at a. a, a large percentage of people that we could actually um, advocate for. And so really, because race has been very uh, much sensitive issue in the United States, um, you know, we're really looking at social determinants of health. And I think that's a very, a a much more appropriate um, terminology to really look at someone's individual and systemic risk factors, you know, both the individual, but then also the system. Um, of, of risk factors that would cause them to be at more risk of, of, of dying after childbirth or during pregnancy than someone of a different race or different socioeconomic status. And so when you're now looking and really regarding social determinants of health, how that, how that translates to the care team is asking questions around a person's environment, a person's work um, of requirements, return to work requirements um, around their transportation, around their support system in a way that is not really done in the obstetrics ward um, at this time. And so that really um, does involve, you know, taking a deeper dive um, into the system. Right now, if we were to treat everyone the same, we know that that is um, contributing to the disparities that we're seeing in maternal health. Everyone is is not the same. They cannot be treated the same. You know, everyone does not have a a, a support system. Uh, you know, we have some moms that uh, really live in multi level uh, unit apartments who have to encounter several steps to get just get into their home. You know, from the outside or or their parking lots are not right up. You know, near the the front door, they have to actually walk a little bit of a distance, then go up steps, and then enter their apartment units. And so, if we treat everyone the same then we would not ask those questions to everyone. We would say, oh, congratulations, you had your baby, you can go home in a day. And so that's that's the problem is that um, equity is not equality. We really don't, we want to get away from e- equal care because equal care would, would continue to, to just go on as we are, you know, ask the same questions, give everyone the same treatment. And that's really a big contributing factor to these deaths is that uh, for me, I should be treated individually um, based on my uh, either risk factors, based on my support system, based on my comorbidities, and that should be taken into consideration. And I think that uh, by withholding occupational and physiotherapy care, I think we're withholding a big piece of the care team that really goes deep into someone's uh, environmental and contextual factors in terms of of their, um, their uh, you know, um, uh, priority, a uh, priority, um, or their, their uh, ability to be successful um, after having um, either a, a surgery that's been unexpected or having a delivery outcome that's been unexpected. I think we see similar statistics, sadly, um, in the UK. I know following the Embrace report um, a few years ago, we, we, we do see similar similarish disparities in in the UK I'm just wondering you know almost the work you're doing is almost life-saving in 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 so many ways isn't it It, it, it's it's quite it's quite mind-blowing the work you are doing I don't know how much you know about the UK system um but I'd be fascinated to know your thoughts on how we can implement a similar 
sort of care package um, in the UK? I don't even know where we begin. Perhaps this is just too big a question, but but it seems to me what you're doing is essential. Um, how 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 do we go about you know starting this journey here in the in the UK because that is predominantly um, who are where our listeners are from. Yeah, so um, across the world, we know that antenatal care is more robust. We know that we surround ourselves as a care team around an individual who's pregnant. We give all the education. And so what we're starting to do now, at least in some of our hospitals, we're we're not where I would love us to be, you know, doing this in every maternity care center Mm -hmm. in the United States. But we're starting to adopt uh, a pre-admission discharge plan model. I'll say that again, it's pre-admission discharge planning. And so I'll give you a very uh, specific example. Mm. And so if we know that a mom is a single parent, has multiple children at home, uh, maybe have some comorbidities that are concerning uh, gestational diabetes or heart relation or um, hypertension or heart related issues, what we would be doing as antenatal, antenatal care providers is that if she's coming to the clinic and she's getting her OB checkup, Uh, we would introduce a physio on the care team very early on, you know, during pregnancy and start taking into account, well, what is your home environment like? What what do you have stairs that you have to go home to? What is your support system like? And ask those questions that would normally be asked in the hospital setting. Ask them before she ever goes into the hospital so that that information is is translated across the the care team while she's in the hospital. And we've already checked her insurance to see that she could have durable medical equipment, that she could have all of these things that she might need, depending on her delivery outcome. So we don't know, in that case, if it's a first-time mom, if she might have an emergency cesarean section, but at least because of our robust pre-admission discharge screen or plan, we have anticipated that wherever uh, she ends up, she has these risk factors, and then that's when we can implement um, a more robust care system or a case manager or social worker or a mental health um, expert just to be uh, there in place uh, because we have now this report that gives us a bigger picture of this person. And it really does start to individualize care, which is more Mm -hmm. going towards the direction of care equity you know, equitable or ethical based care that's really given on that person's parameters that we should have been aware of during her seven to nine months of, of pregnancy. Unbelievable. So the key things that I'm hearing today, which really take all my biases and like go, it kind of goes across all our approaches, no matter what area we work in, but we're talking about individualized care, no blanket care provided, the need to contextualize things and know about people's individual circumstances and to apply appropriate questioning and intervention as required and equal access to all, including mothers who have perhaps lost a baby, mothers who have chosen to terminate a pregnancy, because again, they're going to have physiological changes and context specific things that still require care within a perinatal context. Um, and also you mentioned even women in terms of regarding affordability so we need to be able to provide or come up with streams where people can access care if it's something that traditionally only those who could afford it could access so that's really important and that's something that I'm sure Emma and I would echo here in the UK that we want to make sure that there's um equitable service across the UK because again it's a postcode lottery some trust regions have really nice funding and services and others don't and particularly I'm a rural area and two hours to my nearest center big centers so like what does that mean for if I'm in a high-risk pregnancy or something goes wrong I have to be blue lighted up the road quite a bit and there's all those considerations and mm. um, but it's been fantastic and I think you're a huge voice for uh raising awareness about the importance of early access to care but also the inequity that exists with certain subpopulations and that's something that I think we need to talk about more and more because it needs to be repeat conversations. It needs to be brought up because things need to change. Becca, you're a fountain of knowledge and a lot of people listening here today will be eager to find out more. Where can people find you? So tell us a little bit about your handles or websites or anything. Yes, yes. Uh, so I'm more prominent right now um, 
uh, just through the enhanced recovery after delivery work. So if anyone, you know, just even searched for that term, they'll find a lot of, of the work that I'm doing. Um, we just published our paper under the Journal of Women's Health and of uh, Pelvic Health uh, Physical Therapy in the United States. Um, that's initiating occupational and physical therapy in the hospital after birth. And so that's our publication. I'm working very hard, uh, at least over the next month, to make open access so that there's no burden of cost for individuals, professionals around the world who want to implement those services. I give a step-by-step model of how to do that. Um, Also, it's um, a lot that's pulled from the enhanced recovery after delivery pathway. So I included the clinical pathway from antenatal care to postpartum care uh, from um, hospital to home. And then also we have algorithms that really direct if a mom has experienced this, here's what you do in terms of referring to an OT or or a PT. And so if, you know, people want to find that you know, again, that publication that's on the Journal of Women's and Pelvic Health Physical Therapy, but then a lot of my work is under enhanced recovery after delivery. Fantastic. We'll put those in the show notes. But we want to basically invite you back at some stage in another season to give us an update and to see if we've managed to change anything UK side. <laughs> Me and Emma like just changing the services. <laughs> but, um, and we hope that will happen. And again, I look forward to uh, picking up on our fourth trimester care around the world event at some point where we can do something else and see where where everybody is around the world um, at present. But as always, it's been fantastic. You're a breath of fresh air. And thank you for giving us and our listeners your time. It's been an honour. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. We'd love to hear your questions and feedback. And of course, if you love the episode, please leave a review and tell your friends and family all about the podcast. You can contact us on Instagram at at your underscore podcast or Twitter at at your underscore PM. <laughs>